I uh, recently had the, the, the privilege of being in Calgary and uh, just outside of Banff, uh, being able to hike up a mountain. A, yes, a literal mountain. And um, I, I, it, was, it was a really sweet experience. It took a few hours to get up to the top of this mountain where we had this amazing, amazing view of the city below. And, uh, and the hike was a little bit surprising because when I hear the word hike, I expect it to be somewhat casual and easy. And I found myself for most of the hike gasping for breath. I blame it on the altitude. Um, I, I, I'm in okay shape. Uh, but the, the trail was a lot more difficult than we imagined. And it, and it was far steeper and, you know, uh, dangerous rocks and uh, um, debris that was uh, loosened. In fact, there was some signs near the bottom that said, watch out for falling rocks. That's never a good sign when you go on a hike. Uh, and I remember as we made our way through this hike, and it was incredibly tiring, but it was really rewarding. We got to the top. We saw this beautiful view. And I began to think to myself, how are we going to get back down? Um, I could see at the very top of the mountain, some, some mountain climbers um, had actually installed some uh, equipment, some hardware so that they could rappel down the side of the mountain. I thought that would be a much easier way to get back down because all I could think about was the fact that I was exhausted and, and during the climb up to the top, I was only focused on the destination. I failed to remember that I had to have some reserve in the tank to get back down. You see, what's interesting is that when we, when we think about an analogy like that, it's, it's interesting to think about the, the way we get down is to take the very path we got to get to where we were. And sometimes what we need to realize in the Christian life is that's, that's the reality when we choose to flee God and pursue sin and we run towards a destination. The question that we get to sometimes in our life isn't is this, okay, I see where I am and, and I realize that the exhaustion has taken me to get here, hopefully. Now the real question is, how do I get back to where I once was? Jonah is facing that very issue. He has found himself fleeing from the presence of God, resisting the word of God, and he has been determined to get as far away and as fast as he can from his God. He finds himself now hurled over the side of a boat. God was punishing this fleeing prophet, sending a storm against this boat, and Jonah realizes in the moment that the reason this storm has come upon them and the reason that their lives were in jeopardy is because of his sin. And so he tells the the sailors on the boat to pick him up and throw him into the sea. We saw that last week. And as he finds himself cast into the sea, falling to the bottom of the ocean, This clear and painful truth emerges from his heartfelt prayer. Restoration to God must begin at the place where the rebellion started. It requires going back along that path which you came. And the New Testament picture of this is the prodigal son. This picture of turning and coming back. We have in our mind the prodigal son who fled from the father's presence and all of a sudden realizes that he must get back into his presence. And so he turns around and he walks that painful path that he once traversed. The place that took him so far into sin is the very path that will take him back into the presence of his loving father. And since we, like Jonah, have the tendency to run from God, it's crucial that we understand, isn't it? How, how do we get back to him? Maybe this morning you're looking at your life and you know you're not where you were and where you're supposed to be. And the question that's been on your heart and your mind is, okay, I see where I'm at, but how do I get back, Lord, to that place where I once enjoyed the sweetness of your presence and your blessing? Every one of us have been in that place, haven't we? Jonah's prayer, as we look at it in chapter two this morning, it shows us the path that we must take in getting back to God. So I want us to read that this morning, and then I want to show three ways in which we must get back to God. Let's start at verse 17 of chapter one. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. As we look at this prayer from Jonah, what I want us to see is that getting back to God requires first awakening. See God's sovereignty. It requires there to be an awakening in the heart and mind of every individual who is strained from God's presence. This is the part of the story, by the way, in chapter or 1, verse 17, that everyone loves to talk about, right? When we think of the story of Jonah, here's exactly what comes to mind. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And, and listen, there has, you know, many trees have been murdered in the pursuit of trying to figure out what this fish or this creature or this whale actually was. But I want you to see something really important here. The Bible doesn't care what this fish is. That, that is so far from the point of what God wants us to take from this text. You see, this great fish has a small, very small walk-on part in this amazing unfolding drama that God is putting on display here. The story is not about Jonah and a fish. This story is about Jonah and God. The fish really only serves as a powerful reminder, listen, that God is in complete control of all things. And, and this is just a, a side note that I probably shouldn't mention now because you're going to see more of this unfold. But just pay attention to this in the, the, the framework of this story. Listen, everything in all of creation obeys the voice of God. Everything. Think about this. As we work through this story, right? God speaks to a prophet. God causes a storm to come upon the prophet. The sailors obey the voice of God. This fish obeys the voice of God. When we get to the end of the story, a plant obeys God's voice. A worm obeys God's voice. The only thing that has failed to obey God's voice is the prophet of God. It's, it's staggering Irony and contrast that is being put on display for us. And here, the powerful reminder for our hearts is this. God is in complete control. He is sovereign over all things. And as we look at Jonah in this condition, hurled overboard, sinking to the depths, you, know, you, you, you see the vivid imagery being painted by, by this psalm of sorts that he, that he writes for us in his prayer. And it's powerful. You know, the, the, the seaweeds wrapping around his head, he's going down to the bottom of the ocean, right? The, the roots of the mountains. His very life is fainting from him. It's over for Jonah, right? That's, that's kind of the message we're supposed to get. It's over for Jonah, right? This is the end. He's done. And yet what we see is that it's not over for this rebellious prophet. No, 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 it's not the end of the story because this God of anger is also, here's, here's really what's so crucial for us to get this morning, this God of anger is also a God of unrelenting grace. Aren't you thankful for that truth? He is a God of unrelenting grace. He relentlessly pursues rebels even when they have relentlessly pushed away from him. This is a God of grace we see. In an act of amazing power over his creation, God sends a fish, think about this, to swallow a man. This is staggering. Okay, this is an unbelievable display of sovereignty. How big is the ocean? How small is Jonah of a target? And yet here comes this fish. I mean, think about the sovereignty involved here. Have you ever tried to train a fish? Roll over, sit. You will quickly learn the limits of your sovereignty, okay? It is far beyond your control. And yet what we see here is that God has the power to place this fish exactly where he wants it, when he wants it, and to use it for whatever purpose he wants it. 
Abraham Kuyper has this a famous quote. It would be on the screen behind me here. He says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which God, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. God is in complete control. And this is the beginning place of the awakening for Jonah because here at this moment in his life, it appears that he is beginning to understand how futile his running really is and how great his God really is. And so here's this man in this bizarre place. Can we all just acknowledge for a minute that being in a fish for three days and three nights is incredibly weird. I, I have no clue what it must have been like, how smelly it would have been. Listen, how dark it would have been. He's not lighting a fire in there, right? We understand this? He is sitting alone in the dark, which, listen, he has all the time in the world to sit and think and reflect upon not only who his God is, but who he has become. And in the solitude of this grave of sorts, he begins to reflect upon his time as he spiraled down out of control all the way to the bottom of the ocean. But in, and in this, by the way, is so important for us to understand this morning in verse one. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. He's in this bizarre place. Here's what we need to remember because he is so relentlessly loved by a God of grace. Think about this. This place, though it seems disgusting, though it seems in some senses horrific, is a place of his salvation. It is a reminder of the God of his grace and the unending love of the God he has served and the God he has fled from. You'll never understand this prayer until you first understand the love of God and the sovereignty of God. And that's what Jonah is seeing in this. God's sovereignty is demonstrating his love by saving him through these radical means. And in verse two, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. You see, there is an awakening taking place in the heart of Jonah as he looks at his circumstances and he reflects upon them. He's now in the belly of a great fish and he realizes that God has heard his cry for he is now safe where he was once falling and breath fainting from him, life draining from his body. All of a sudden he recognizes that all because of the loving sovereignty of God, he is safe. And he says, I love this, I called out to the Lord in my distress. Isn't that a funny word he chooses to use, distress? I mean, it seems somewhat ambiguous, doesn't it? In my distress? It's euphemistic. It's really not telling the whole story of what's happened, as if somehow he's saying in his distress, somehow, someway, mysteriously, trouble has fallen upon this man. Distress is an understatement when you consider what we know about Jonah in this story so far. And yet we do this all the time, don't we? We can play the same part as Jonah. We've all had weeks of living in rebellion to God and then prayed, oh Lord, it's just been a really tough week, haven't we? As if our sin has played no part in that, as if the consequences of our sin have not played a massive role in the difficulty of the week. Or we've said things like this, Lord, I'm really struggling, when what we really mean is, Lord, I'm really doubting whether or not you are good and really whether or not you exist, whether or not you love me. Praise God he hears our euphemistic prayers of distress. Verse three, he makes it clear, by the way, that God is sovereign over his circumstances. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He's being beaten and dragged down. Jonah here is acknowledging the truth of God's sovereignty in his circumstances. This was not just some kind of generalistic distress of life in a fallen world. God, he says, you brought this about, God. You are in control of this. You have done this thing. And Jonah is acknowledging in some small way right now his own guilt and shame in the matter. In fact, he's already made it clear that he knows that the punishment that's being leveled upon the, the ship and now him being dragged to the bottom of the ocean here is a result of his own fleeing from God, his own sinfulness. 
And you see, what's taking place in the heart of Jonah is through this awakening, God is moving him to a place of repentance, and that's what we will see towards the end of this section. And the question I think that's helpful for us to ask is this, how does God often awaken us to the reality of our condition? How does God bring us to this place where we finally have to be turned around? And the answer is painful yet profound. God will often awaken us through affliction. He he will hurt us like a loving father who disciplines a child for the purpose of turning us back to the right path. God in his love will sometimes cause us great distress. He will take us to the bottom. He will empty us of all of our resources. He will empty us of ourself, and he's trying to drive us to a place, listen, of brokenness where we come with humility and contrition. You know, I think of the prodigal son. Or what did God have to do to him? God had to let him exhaust every resource he had. He had to let him exhaust himself to the fullest, right? Here's the prodigal son after fleeing from the father, spending all of his money frivolously. He is penniless, he is friendless, he is familyless, and he is foodless, almost. He's eating slop of pigs. And he is experiencing the full weight of the consequences of his sin. Then as the distress does its work, Here's the good news. God will relieve us because he's not a God who is mean and capricious. He's not a God who's vindictive and he's just out to get you. He's a God who desperately loves you and wants your good. His desire, hopefully this encourages your heart this morning, especially if you're going through a time of distress. His desire is not that we needlessly suffer. No, his intent is our redemption and our restoration. His goal is our good. He is driving us towards growth in Christ-likeness. He is refining us and purging us of the things that would cause us to flee from his presence. To do this, he will sovereignly bring trouble into our lives in order to create the turning of our hearts. Maybe look at your life this morning. I don't know where you're at, I don't know what's been going on in your life, but take a, take a look at your life and just do an assessment of, of the circumstances of your life and the things that are happening right now in your life. Maybe everything is great and that's fantastic, praise the Lord, but perhaps right now there are some distressing circumstances in your life. Some not as a result of your sin, some you can see very clearly are a result and consequence of your sin, And ask yourself this question, is God trying to get my attention right now? Is God trying to awaken me and is God trying to break me? Is God trying to expose me to the reality of who he is and all of his sovereignty and all of his power and all of his control and is he trying to humble me and show me I'm not in control like I think I am and I desperately need to come underneath his control because I have been running far from it. Awakening is designed to turn us, secondly, toward believing. Not just away from sin, but look at this, to seek God's presence. He's beginning to move Jonah in the right direction. And Jonah is is beginning to head back towards God. He was trying to run from the presence of God, but now he's beginning to run toward the presence of God. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. You see, God knows, just as a side note, what's necessary to bring us back to him. And so maybe you're facing some distressing circumstances in your life and you're saying, really God, is this necessary? The simple answer is yes. Yes, it is absolutely necessary. We must allow God to be the judge of what is right and necessary for each of us individually. And what's important, by the way, is not the means God uses, because he could use dramatic means like he uses in the life of Jonah, or he can use fairly undramatic means. He knows exactly what will get your attention. He knows what it's going to take. The important thing is not the means that God chooses to use to get your attention. It's that we should be brought back to live in the presence of God. To know both the shame and the joy of his restoring grace. Jonah is now beginning to think about the presence of God that resides, by the way, in the temple. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was linked directly, the physical presence of God was linked directly to the Old Testament temple. 
that the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God dwelt physically in a cloud of smoke in the temple. And so Jonah's indicating right now that his heart is beginning, rather than fleeing from the presence of God, to begin to seek the presence of God. Where he was trying everything he could to get away, he now understands the one thing that he so desperately needs. And what an important message. I've been so impacted by this thought this week. What an important message for my own heart and what an important message for the church corporately. Listen, Sinclair Ferguson, it'll be on the screen behind me, says it like this so profoundly. He says, increasingly, we need to be convinced that the most important thing in the world, in our personal lives, in our evangelism, our worship, is the presence of God. All other things are secondary and should serve this great end. That that is it. That the presence of God is the thing we need. It is the thing we need above all else. Without the presence, you remember what Moses said in Exodus, Lord, if you do not go with us, God, right? It's you going with us that makes us anything at all. And how desperately we need to be reminded of that. How, how often are we as followers of Christ trying to go it alone, do our own thing, right? So, so far from the presence of God, forgetting what Jonah is realizing here, that the one thing that he so desperately needs is the one thing he's been fleeing from. So what does that look like? I mean, what is this kind of belief? See, because here's what you have to understand here. Jonah is beginning to exercise faith. He's beginning to believe, I love this definition of faith by David Haig, who is a pastor and author. He says this, he says, faith is believing that what God offers through obedience is better by far than what Satan offers through sin and selfishness. Isn't that good? Listen, let me say that again. Faith is believing that what God offers through obedience is better by far than what Satan offers us through sin and selfishness. See, for a time, Jonah was believing, having faith, that what Satan was tempting him to do and fleeing from the presence of God, what his flesh wanted him to do in getting away from the presence of God was better. It was going to be better for him, more enjoyable in the long run for him. And right now in this moment, he is beginning to realize that faith is the most important thing in his life. Believing that being in the presence of God which is found in walking faithfully with him, submitting to his will, that that is better by far. You see, it looks like coming to the end of ourselves, being broken and contrite. It looks like the prodigal son who is face down in the slop of his sin, and then he realizes that what was offered to him in the presence of his father is so much better than what he's been seeking in the world. And now I believe, Jonah says essentially, the answer I've been looking for, the answer that I need is found in seeking God's presence. I will go back to him like the prodigal son, right? You know, I, I have seen The value of this, personally, I hope you have too. I have seen God have to break me in painful ways. I have seen God have to strip me of things that I have held dear and things that I have leaned upon and loved more than I've loved him. I've seen God humiliate me in my prideful rebellion. I've seen God, I've felt God break me. You say, is this really necessary? Is it necessary that God has to do this? And and the answer, again, I have to say, is a a resounding yes. One one of my favorite quotes, and I repeat it to myself often in preparation for what God might have to do in my life, is, is he says this, he said, it's doubtful whether or not a God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Why? Why? Because our, our self-sufficiency, our selfish desires, our selfish hearts, are, isn't this true? They're not easily conquered. They're not. And there is a fight that is being waged in our souls. Or Peter calls it, right? The, the fight that's being waged in our soul. The Spirit of God wrestles with our flesh. And we far too often see that the battle, like Jonah, is lost at least for a time. 
And so God must bring means into our life so that he can conquer our flesh and our self-sufficiency. He can strip the sin away from us. He can leave us broken. And then he could take us and remold us and refashion us into the people he wants us to be. Look at verses five and six. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bar closed upon me forever. He paints this picture of utter hopelessness and despair. I mean, he believes he's on the brink of utter ruin. He believes that life is over. This is it for him. What, what is sin brought about was what seemed like certain death. But I want you to see this. You see, this serves really as a picture of how we get ourselves away from God and get ourselves into such deep difficulty that we are un, utterly unable to help ourselves. We get to places where there is literally no hope for us but the rescue of God. And that's where he comes in and powerfully says at the end of verse six, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, this is so vital. Verse seven, look at this. This is so, so important. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. This is faith. This is believing. This is the moment everything really changes. When we remember the Lord, when we remember the Lord, when we remember the Lord, it, that, that, listen, when we are able to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our circumstances and place them back upon the one who is sovereign over all and the one who loves us beyond anything else and anyone else, this is the moment when everything changes. Like the prodigal son who began to think about the father's graciousness, how his father cared for all those in his household. And he turned back, believing that what he would get at the hand of his father was better than what sin was offering him. So too Jonah And we must believe that it is better to be in the presence of the Father than enjoying the empty and destructive pleasures of our sinful rebellion. I was thinking uh, this morning of Psalm 84, verse 10. A familiar psalm that uh, many of you will remember uh, on the screen behind me here. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. There it is. Isn't that that the case? Do you see the recognition there in the heart of the psalmist? It is so much better. It is so much better to be in the presence of God. It's so much better to be enjoying the fruit of blessings from God than it is to dwell in the tents of wickedness. What sin offers us, it will never, ever fulfill us. It will never satisfy us. It will only hollow us out and strip us of life. It's so much better to be in the presence of God. I think God is speaking to some of you right now. I think some of you, God has wanted to stop dead in your tracks right now, right this very moment, and God is addressing your heart right now because you see on the pages of Scripture, you see yourself. You see how you have been fleeing from God's presence. You see how you've been trying to find what you need in sin. You see how unsatisfying it is, and God is telling you to stop. Stop that right now. Just stop where you are. Recognize that what you're eating is pig slop. It's got no, no value, it's got no physical value, it's got no spiritual value, and it's leaving you literally bankrupt and empty. And then he says to you now, turn and believe. Believe that God can offer you in his presence everything you've been seeking. Believe that God is offering you in his presence what your heart desperately longs for. Some of you, this is really painful. You're in a painful place because you've known what it's like to experience. I love the psalm that Brian read at the announcements, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Some of you in here, and I've been here. I've been here, okay? I've been here. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I've known the presence of God in my life. I've known the blessings of God in my life. I've known what it is to grow in leaps and bounds spiritually. And then I've known what it is to fall far away. I've known what it is to fall into sin. I've known what it is to feel distant from God. 
And the taste that I've had is what makes the place I'm in so difficult and so painful. And some of you know that. And what God is saying is this, it's not too late. This is the good news. It's not too late to come and taste again and see that the Lord is good. I remembered the Lord. I remembered what it was like to be in his presence. I remembered what it was like to be a a faithful prophet who was proclaiming the word of God. I remember what it was like to walk in obedience to his word. I remembered. I remember how faithful my God is. Can you remember what it's like to be living in communion and obedience to your God? Can you remember the love of your God towards you? Can you remember the hope of your God, the life that's found in your God? Jonah is beginning to remember these things and so much more, and God's grace is at work in his life. God is the one moving in his heart. God is the one arresting arresting and awakening his heart. God is the one who is turning his face back to view him in his his, uh, temple, to see his presence and to reflect upon it. You see, it's God's grace that makes us rational again, isn't it? All sin is utterly irrational. Do you believe that? It's utterly irrational, right? It's the, it's the epitome of stupidity, right? We, we, again, we're pursuing something we believe is going to satisfy us that never can. It's utterly irrational. And here what we see is that in God's grace, God's grace is the only thing that makes us rational again, isn't it? It's only God's grace. He makes us see again. He makes us feel again. He makes us want again. He makes us desire again. His grace makes us alive again. He is turning back as he fixes his eyes no longer on himself, but on his gracious God. And that's when sense comes back into his heart and into our hearts and minds too. It makes your heart, doesn't it, when you read this, as you're seeing, and you just remember the backdrop, this unfaithful prophet fleeing the presence of God, now all of a sudden God is turning him around. Doesn't it make your heart just want to burst forth with praise? Because we are seeing a man being raised up by God to do what God and God alone has called him to do, and God alone can make him do. Awakening and believing lead finally to repenting. Embrace God's grace. Verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You know, maybe Jonah's mind at this point is going back to the boat when all the crew in distress called out to their own gods. Maybe he's thinking about what what their gods would be represented by these vain idols, idols made out of wood, idols carved out of stone and precious metals, gods who could not save and who are utterly powerless, helpless, worthless in the face of the raging storm of God's fury. It is utterly Utter futility to put your hope in anything or anyone but the God of the Bible. And Jonah is making this so powerfully clear. There is only one place to run, only one place to find life, only one place to find hope. There is only one place to find grace, and that is in the Lord God. Jeremiah chapter 10 gives kind of a a sarcastic depiction of what idolatry really is. And uh, I want to read it to you. It'll be up on the screen behind me. Just follow along with me. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked on with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. That's a put down if you didn't catch that. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. 
You talk about vain idols. The vain idols of the world are nothing but a scarecrow in a cucumber patch. They have to be nailed and set there because they can't walk on their own. They have to be decorated and made to look kind of frightening to scare off birds because they're nothing. In contrast to their nothingness is the greatness of the one true and only God. Vain idols, eyes that don't see, ears that can't hear, mouths that can't speak, feet that can't walk. Here we see finally a heart that is turning to worship God with a building crescendo. Verse nine comes into play. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Whenever a person in the Old Testament talked about sacrifice, it was an acknowledgement of one thing, sin, and the guilt and shame that is being recognized in the heart of the individual offering the sacrifice. It's a recognition of the need for forgiveness, and it is a recognition that there is a God who will have his anger appeased and offer forgiveness. You see, Jonah is finally and fully acknowledging his rebellion. He's saying, I turned, I rejected your will, I resisted your word, I ran from your presence. And here's what's so important for us to get this morning. To get before God and say, God, listen, if, if, if you take anything out of this message this morning, just let it be this. Hopefully more too, but let it be this at least. To get before God and say this. God, the greatest trouble in my life is not the general trouble from a fallen world. It's not the problems that others are causing for me in my life. It's not even the circumstances, the difficulties that I find myself in in my life. The greatest trouble in my life is my own sin. The greatest problem I'll ever face in this life is not outside of me, it's inside of me. I acknowledge that and I come with a thankful heart to offer worship to you because I know that I am my greatest problem. This is true repentance. No blaming, no justifying. Humble and broken acknowledgement of the real problem. A sinful heart that resides in every single fallen human being on this planet. Every one of us is broken Every one of us is like Jonah and has fled from the presence of God. Every one of us at points in our life and to varying degrees is in need of saying, I've strained, I've fallen far from where I was and I need to turn and I need to get back to God. And by the grace of God, this God gives us the way and he graciously turns us back to himself and he graciously produces within our heart a brokenness that leads to repentance, that leads to the refreshing and reviving of our souls. You see, part of repentance is not only acknowledging our sin. Listen here, this is so, some of you, you, you get stuck in your sin. You know, you, you, you cry out for repentance and you're like, God, forgive me, but you beat yourself up in your sin and in your shame, right? You wallow in self-pity and you feel like I just, I can't get back up. Even though I've called out for forgiveness and I believe that God's forgiven me, your failure, listen, is this, this is so important. Your failure is a failure to truly embrace the grace that God extends to you. And you need to hear this today. You're forgiven in Christ Jesus. You're forgiven. And if God is no longer beating you up for your sin, if God is no longer punishing you for your sin and condemning you for your sin, listen, neither shall you, for you place yourself in a position above God. He offers his grace to you fully and he offers it freely You don't earn it. You don't work your way back into his good graces. You believe, you have faith in this God. And the same other side of that coin is to repent and confess your sin to him. Here is Jonah getting back to God. You know, it's impossible to read this prayer without beginning to think that this prayer doesn't just picture the experience of Jonah. It really is a portrait of the life of every human being. 
And these words, drowning, deep, tempest, bars closed upon me, tempest raging against me, all of these are used in scripture to picture the condition of every sinner. We are all like Jonah. We all seek to run from God's presence, maybe not geographically, maybe it's the moment of sin when I behave as if God doesn't exist, where I want to do what I want to do, not what God wants, where my passions and my desires are more important than his, when my will and my way trump his will and his way. In those moments, I am running from the plan, the purpose, and the presence of God. There's not a person in all of humanity who hasn't and doesn't in some way rebel against the God of grace and the grace of God. Just say it to yourself, I am Jonah. We too have run to vain idols. We forget the creator. We run to our own mini messiahs, our own saviors. We live for power and possessions and success. We live for the acceptance of others. We live for the pleasures of this life and the passions of our flesh. But distress always reveals that our idols are utterly powerless. The things we run to are futile. They cannot give us what we need. Your idol in your life right now can give you no hope, no life, and it can certainly give you no full joy. Say, so how do I know that true repentance in, in, has taken place in my life? Or, or better yet, how do I know that I've truly embraced the grace of God? What should that look like in my life? What should it produce in my life? That's a great question. I'd love to answer it for you. Here's three things that embracing God's grace produces in your life. First is this, greater compassion. Greater compassion you see, we have to, you know, sometimes when we get down into a text, we, we don't want to miss the forest because we're looking at a tree. We have to remember that God in these four chapters is unfolding a plan of redemption. He's unfolding a story, and each little part is powerfully building a case for what God is doing and what God is wanting to communicate. You see, when we turn away from the Lord, we inevitably turn away also from the desperate need of others. That's what Jonah was doing, right? He fled from the presence of God, and in doing so, he was fleeing from the desperate need of the Ninevites to know the saving power and the saving grace of this God. We do the same thing. We close our hearts toward the people who need to know the good news of salvation. And so what God is doing here is is he's setting up the story about what's going to come next, You see, now, listen, now the prophet is prepared to go and do the thing that God called him to do originally because he has had a personal experience with the grace of God in his life when he knows he didn't deserve it. Isn't that powerful? See, he recognizes, God, you saved me. You rescued me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God, you rescued me when I rebelled against you. Oh, wait a second. You were calling me to go to a people who have rebelled against you too and give that gracious message of salvation. You see how it all of a sudden starts to click? the reluctant prophet is going to become the evangelistic prophet. Why? Because in the depth of his own need, he's experienced God's grace and God's compassion. Now he's able to have compassion, Christ-like compassion on these people who need it. Before, listen, he was like so many in the church. Listen, he's like so many in the church who self-righteously pump themselves up and begin to believe, though they don't say it, that somehow they deserve God's grace. I'm really not that bad. And how dare God save those people, right? And I, I'm not going to them. Forget that. God can call somebody else to go and talk to those people, Right? You see, we desperately need to learn this lesson that when we have had a true experience of God's grace, listen, and when we reflect upon God's grace, that becomes the fuel for compassionately reaching out to those who are lost and in desperate need. Embracing God's grace means this, it will produce in your heart greater compassion for those who desperately need it. And so, listen, the reverse is true. If you are failing to have compassion on people who need God's grace, here's, here's the lesson that you need to hear. You need to, be, you need to go back and reflect upon the grace, the amazing grace that God has shown you in salvation. Isn't that true? You need to think about what you deserve. You need to think about how you deserve the wrath of God. You need to think about how you didn't deserve any of the good things that God has given you, and he has just poured out blessing upon blessing upon you. And you need to allow that to shake your heart with compassion for those who are lost and in desperate need of the good news of salvation. Second thing that embracing grace produces is this, greater commitment. 
Did you notice what Jonah says here in verse nine? He says, what I have vowed, I will pay. I don't know what vow he's talking about. The scriptures don't illuminate that truth for us. I don't know exactly what he's referring to. Maybe, maybe he's made a vow in the belly of this fish to now go to the Ninevites. Maybe that's the vow. He's like, okay, God, I'm gonna go do it. I'm making a vow. I will be faithful and obedient. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe he's thinking back to the time when God first called him to be a prophet. Maybe he's thinking about the time when he first committed himself wholly to the work that God had prepared him for. Regardless of what the moment is, in the face of his rebellion, in the face of God's grace, he understood that, listen, he was being given a second chance. And in light of that second chance, what he was doing was he was recommitting himself to his God. You know, we don't do a lot of stuff like that. You know, I think that words like recommit my life to Christ are so overused and cliche in the Christian life, but can I just tell you this? There is biblical precedent for this concept of recommitting ourselves to Jesus Christ. Jonah is doing this to God. He's saying, God, I have vowed, what I have vowed, I will repay. And there's some, listen, there's some of you in this room, and you, you know this, you've been straying. God's pulling you back right now. He's pulling you back into the fold. You've been that one wandering sheep. He's gone after you. He's left the 99. He's grabbed you. He's carried you back on his shoulders. You're beat up, and you're wounded, and you're broken, and God is saying, good, now let me take you, and let me restore you. And what he's asking you to do right now is before him and before him alone, say, God, I am recommitting myself to you. I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm no longer going to pursue the idols of this world. I'm not going to intentionally go there, Lord. And, and when I do, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would quickly break me again and bring me back again. And some of us, listen, we need to do this. We need to do this right now. We need to stop and say, God, I need to recommit myself to you because I've committed myself to the vain idols of this world. And that's you. I just encourage you. You can, you can do this. You don't, have to, you, know, you don't have to stand. You don't have to come to the front. You can do this right now. You can do this before God right now. You can say, God, I want to recommit myself to you. And my vow is I will follow you above all else. And we serve a God. Isn't this amazing? We serve a God of second chances. Some of you know this all too well like I do. And third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and sixth chances and seventh chances. We serve a God who is unending in his grace towards us. So it doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how many times you've fallen. God invites you back again. And he says, I, I love you. You're my child, right? Like a father whose child continues to go off and make mistakes. You never say, well, you're no longer mine. I will never forgive you. You're out on your own. No, a loving father says, I love you no matter what mistakes you make, no matter the failures that are in your life. I will always take you back. God says to you today, listen, where sin runs deep, come on. His grace is more. It's more. The third thing that embracing God's grace produces in a heart is this greater conviction. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Just hear that again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a personal crying out from the soul, a recognition, listen, of important theological truth that is being turned into praise. This is no kind of mere sentiment being offered by Jonah. This is a deep recognition of the sovereignty of God and salvation. He is declaring, he knows personally, listen, salvation is of God, it is always by God, it is for God, God saves who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. Salvation is wholly a work of God. Jonah has seen God's grace in his salvation. Though he didn't deserve it, God went to great lengths to rescue this rebellious sinner. He has swallowed him up in a fish and he's spitting him back out onto the shore, now prepared because his heart has been so radically gripped by the grace of God. He is declaring salvation belongs to the Lord because now he knows as he goes out, not only is his salvation a result of God's grace, as he goes out, he is declaring to a people who he had written off that God wants to save them. How many people have you written off in your life that God wants to save? By the way, just as God went to great lengths to rescue this rebellious sinner, he did the same for you and me. 
That really is the message of this prayer. It points to a universal truth about the hope of salvation. In fact, Jesus reflects back on this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Listen to what he says. I'll just read it to you. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He goes on to say in verse 41, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. He is using this picture of Jonah being three days, three nights in the belly of the whale as an an analogy, as a type, a picture pointing to his own death on behalf of sinners. You see, Jesus Christ faced the wrath of God not because of his rebellion, but because of ours. He was distressed because he was the spotless lamb of God willing to take on the sin of humanity so that we could have forgiveness and restoration. You see, the second Jonah, the greater Jonah, didn't just face death, he died. And he was vindicated by his father. He rose and conquered the grave. He conquered sin, he conquered death. It has lost its sting, it has lost its power. The darkest moment of disaster in human history was also the glorious moment of grace that declared beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation belongs to the Lord. The prayer of Jonah is a picture of the need of every man, but it's also the portrait of the grace of the one man who is our life, our hope, and our redemption. This man was separated from God so that we would not be able to be separated from him. Are you getting back to God? Is your heart turning to him? Does his grace motivate your thoughts, your words, your decisions, your behaviors? Does his grace thrill your heart today? If that isn't ruling your heart, listen, then perhaps some vain idol has taken his place. And rather than wrapping our arms around the vain idols of this world, let's throw them to the ground. Let's crush them under our feet. Let's trample them to death. And let's cling to the God of glorious grace, the one who went to the depths to save us. Amen?